Well, you can sit down, but I can't. <laughs> we have a great, great time ahead of us here this morning. For those of you who are guests, we are uh, looking at the scriptures as we do each Sunday morning. In the little rack in the chair, underneath the chair in front of you, there's a Bible. If you didn't bring one this morning, you might uh, be helped by having that in your hand while we're going through our passage this morning. And so uh, you don't even need to know books of the Bible and stuff. On page 1006, you'll find the passage we're going to be looking at today. So if you'll look there, and those of you who uh, have your Bibles with you, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 11 to 14 this morning. We're going to talk about the cross of Christ this morning. Um, it, it was kind of, kind of cool. One of, the, one of the dads was praying with his family about Pastor Horner's. He's preaching on the cross this morning. And she literally thought I was going to somehow or another be on the cross preaching. And she was concerned about that. So um, I'm going to be preaching about the cross. And, uh, and so praise God we've already had a Savior who has already been on the cross for us. So that's good. So beginning in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. Follow along with me through verse 14, and then we'll pray and and consider these things. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray together. Father, may we understand the answer to that. How much more have you done for us? Once for all, you paid the penalty, never having to be paid again because it is paid in full. So, Lord, we bow before you this morning and ask you to teach us. You're our teacher, Lord. The Scriptures, that's your textbook. You've given us this information that is validated by the truth of your resurrection. And so, Lord, we can trust what we read, and we can allow you to minister to our hearts with truth that absolutely transforms lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the mind that we have is an amazing thing. It's got all these chips and bytes of computer storage of memory, all the stuff back there. And if you don't believe that because you, you're thinking, I don't even remember my phone number anymore because all I know is somebody punches one and, and you know, I'm speed dialed. That's fine. But, but you've got this capacity. You get in the car to go somewhere and uh, you're, you're tired of listening to all your, your stuff on your, uh, you know, digital stuff. You're, you're worn out with that. And you actually turn the radio on. Remember that radio? And, uh, and so you turn that on and a song comes on from 20 years ago and you're riding down the road. Next thing you know, you're just singing along. You sing, you're singing all the, wor- all the words. You didn't even know you knew those words. And somebody said, would you write down the words to, you know, and you were thinking, I don't, I don't know the words to that. And then, and it comes on, and boom, you're right there, and you're singing harmonies. You're awesome. Uh, nobody else is in the car with you, of course, but then when this happens. But, but you have this capacity. It's, it's all kind of built in there. And, and you know stuff that you don't even know that you know. So here's a, here's a little pop quiz we're going to give today. And uh, it's going to be an opportunity for those of you who kind of grew up in church circles to show off a little bit, but in a very humble, not prideful way. Yeah. So, uh, and if you're, if you're not a, a person who came up in the background of the church, you just watch at the people around you who are trying to figure out, I think I, I, think I know that one. And, and what we're going to do is I'm going to start off with a line. 
And I'm not going to be like my girl or anything like that. No, I'm, I'm talking, you know, something that, you know, from the Carpenters or, you know, Iron Butterfly or, you know, one of those similar groups back in the 60s and 70s. No, looking back and just thinking, what are the songs that speak of the cross? We, we are informed by our background in, in many respects. And so if we don't know anything about that, it may be because we don't have a programmed thought process to bring those things up. But I believe some of you do. So if I start off this morning and I'll start a line and then you join in, if you know it. If you don't know it, not part of your background, don't worry about it. But here, here it is. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. Okay, you know that one. Okay, some of you didn't know it thinking, where did they learn that? They don't even know. They don't even remember where they picked up that song. It's just somewhere in their background. How, how about this? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering. Okay, so some of, okay, you're two for two, some of you. And others of you are like, I'm, I'm over two. I, I don't know. That's okay. It's no problem. Um, Alas, and did my Savior die, and did my Sovereign die. That, yeah, and then it gets to the part where it calls you a worm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's another, another good one there. And, okay, now, if you grew up in kind of a, more of a little more Wesleyan tradition, you own this one. The rest of you kind of just hang in there because you might not get it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his... You got, some of you are going like, I never heard that song before in my life. But those who did... It triggers something, doesn't it? And then just all of a sudden you realize, and there's, there's, we could do that for hours. And just kind of first line, do it, and just boom, you go. And then you can move that into the, the 20th century on the last half. And then you see all that contemporary music coming in there with the same things that if we started in that vein, you would have that too. And, and then into the 21st century, we've got another whole wave of stuff coming in there. And what you're going to find out is that the way you have been programmed by your music and by your training and by your background will largely determine what you think and what you believe and how your feelings have been shaped about the cross. It's not just some friends of ours were in England on vacation and they went into a little gift shop and wanted to buy a cross in the little gift shop and to show where the culture has disconnected from the message of the cross, the lady behind the counter says, you want one with a little man on it or not? Whoa, she didn't know. She didn't have any background. She didn't know when I surveyed the wonders cross. She didn't know that the story of the cross. You kind of reflect what you know. And so we want to be able to look at this this morning because we're here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the thing. Without the cross, the resurrection is nonsensical. It, it doesn't have any connectedness to a reality that we can relate to if there's not an anchor prior to the resurrection that we embrace together as the cross. And so we want to understand what has shaped our thinking. Hymns have, stories have, Bible studies in the past, all those things have shaped it. But the reality is that we each have to come to terms with what is the meaning of the cross. You see, at the cross, and this is the central message to the, to the Christian faith, at the cross... His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the message of the cross. Okay, so there was a price to be paid 
to pay the debt for our sin. And the price was at the cost of a crucified Savior, someone to take our place in sin. That's the message of Christianity. Now, not so with everybody who professes to be a follower of Christ but wants to change the core of the message. And so we want to be able to, to put this out there this morning for you to interact with. And, and this is a safe place. If you don't agree with what we're saying this morning, let's talk about it. Let's just don't walk away and say, well, I don't agree with that stuff. Those people are crazy. Well, yeah, we are probably pretty crazy in a lot of different ways. But not on this. We feel very confident that we have a foundation to stand on. And wherever you stand, we want you to be confident where you stand too. And so let's look at these things together and, and let us present for you this message, the central message of the cross. Because Paul, the apostle, says this. He says, the, the word of the cross, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then in chapter 2, in the second verse, he says it this way. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, so I can go into the debates with the philosophers and I could go toe-to-toe with them if that's what it was called for. I, I could go into the realm of the poets and, and we could recite poems and, and quote songs of the day all we want to. He says, but that's not why I'm here. I didn't come with eloquence of word and persuasive speech to try to talk you into believing in my deity. I just came to tell you about Jesus and the fact that he died for your sins. That's the message. When Hope and Rose were baptized at 920, there was a central theme. There was a message in what was going on there. For those of you who don't come from a a baptism by immersion tradition, here's what happened. When they had given their testimony publicly on video, then uh, one of our pastors, Dave Owen, was in the water with them. And he says, as Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, just as he commanded. And then he took hope and he took rose and he he lowered them into the water why did he do that because it's a testimony that they're saying uh christ died for my sins and so i've identified with him in his death we didn't keep him there three days relax (laughs) but we lowered him into that water grave and then we raised them up as a testimony of their identification with his new life what's the testimony of the waters of baptism i'm being baptized because jesus died for my sins. That's the story. When we come to the Lord's table and we have communion together, what are we saying? This is the body of Christ broken for me. This is the cup, the blood of Christ shed for me. Why am I taking this? Because I have identified with Christ by faith. And I can do this because Jesus died for me. It's central to what we believe. It's, it's all there. And it's not just some kind of symbolic gesture. It's not that at all. It's, there's substance. There's meat here. And we want to reclaim the message of the cross and make sure we get it. Because in our culture, uh, this, this day is a, is a very popular holiday. Kathy and I were at the mall this week. And we were, we were walking in the mall. And, and every step is being celebrated by pastel lights. You know, and it's like, you know, they're coming down. They're just in waves. You know, here's some pinks and some blues and some greens. And, you know, and you're going down there thinking, wow, uh, they go all out on this thing. Somebody had to go up there and and put that timer on and get all that stuff going on. They they love the idea of Easter and the celebration. And so we get these wonderful little dyed eggs. Again, pastels. Aren't they wonderful? And and they're beautiful and they're, they're 
pinks and blues and greens. All that's, that's great. And then we get little bunnies. I have no idea where they come from. Uh, and then we have artificial grass, which would be a blessing for those of us with allergies. And then we have this idea that, that Resurrection Sunday, this is, this is end of winter. We say, hopefully. This is the end of winter. This is, this is when our, our dogwood bloomed this week in our front yard. That's awesome. And, and flowers are coming up. And, and by next weekend, of course, it's the Masters Golf Tournament, so the azaleas will be out. You know? And we, we look at all this and say, isn't resurrection wonderful? Easter is awesome. That's, that's not Easter. But it is for many people. Because the resurrection for them has come to mean nothing more than an awakening of spring-like cultic adoration of Mother Earth's rebirth. That's not Easter. It's not Easter. Instead of the, the pastels and the beauty of that, and, and I think they're great. And by the way, some of y'all look really good today. Um, but instead of those pastels, the, the essence of the color of Easter is blood red of the cross. And without the cross, resurrection doesn't make sense. Resurrection is the coming alive, being raised from what? Death. And so if there's not death, if there's not a cross, there's no need for a resurrection. And if there's no need for a resurrection, Paul says it later on in 1 Corinthians, he says, we're all fools anyway. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we're of all people to be most pitied because the whole thing is a ruse. So since it's not a ruse, we don't believe what do we have to do to process this? One of the things we have to do is to engage with our friends and our, our culture around us and be able to say, we, we need to hear you and you need to hear us. We want you to be able to dialogue with us about this because this is not, this is not up for grabs as far as we're concerned. This is not a matter of, well, you believe what you want to and I'll believe what I want to. No, truth is something that is mutually exclusive of everything that's not true. And so postmodern thinking, everything else, that says, well, all these things can be true together. No, they can't. Up can't be down. Down can't be up. Black can't be white. White can't be black. They're different. And and truth, we want to make sure, is true. And so what's the idea of the cross that's at stake here? Paul addresses it as well in the same passage in 1 Corinthians. He says, "Here's, here's the thing. When I preach the message of the cross, he says, it is Christ crucified. And that has two major objectionable issues built into it. And so this is in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, we we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's foolishness to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. Okay, so the, the Greeks and Gentiles, that's everybody who's not Jewish. So he says, if you have a Jewish heritage, what I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ dying for your sins and being buried and then being raised on the third, that's going to be a stumbling block for you because you have a different idea of who Messiah needs to be. And so when Jesus was already after the tomb, he's already resurrected. There are two guys leaving Jerusalem, just they've given up on Jesus and they're walking back home to their village called Emmaus. This is in Luke chapter 24. And it says, while they're walking along, Jesus came up beside him and started talking to him. And he says, what's, what's going on? What's, why are you guys, you guys are looking kind of down in the dumps. And they says, are you the only guy in this whole region who doesn't know what's happened? And you imagine Jesus kind of going, oh, really? Well, tell me about it. <laughs> like, you don't know Jesus, but they didn't know it was Jesus. And so they said, well, they start telling him about himself. 
And then they made this amazing statement. They says, we had hoped. You hear that language? We had hoped he would be the one who would save us. Why, why is he not going to be the one who saves you? It's got to be the question. They said, we had hoped that he was going to be the one, but they just killed him. It's just Friday. They just, they just killed him. And now we're confused because some of our friends went by the, the tomb. They were going to kind of take care of some things and take care of the body and all this stuff. And, and his body wasn't there, and, and we're confused. And we don't know what's going on. But here's the thought. The, the idea of Jesus being killed was a major stumbling block to their whole faith system because they had in mind that, that when God, the, the Messiah, would come, he would throw off all their troubles and all their sorrows and all the oppression that was around. The, the Romans would just go away. The, the Jewish kingdom would be established. This Messiah would be on the throne. He would come in with his armies, and everybody would be under his reign. And the Jewish kingdom would be established. That was their mentality, and that's what they were looking for. Jesus was not that. Now, if they'd read their own scriptures and, and understood a lot of what it was going to say about what the Messiah would be like and read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and other places that talked about the suffering servant to come as the Messiah, they would have understood. But, but Paul says they're not going to get that right away. So he says the message of Jesus crucified for them is a stumbling block. They can't get past that because that seems to be a disqualifier from anybody who's going to be Lord and Savior, ruler, king. He can't have already been dead. We had hopes, but it's not to be. And then it says that Jesus began explaining from all the prophets and all the law and all the Psalms. It said just from the scriptures, he began to explain to them all the things it said concerning himself. And then when they got where they were going, their eyes were open and saw who it was. But I think their eyes were being opened along the way as they saw Jesus opening up the scriptures and saying, it had to be this way. It had to be this way. And when he was with his disciples, he explained to them all the way, it's going to have to be this way. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, turned over to the chief priests and the scribes and the people. And they're going to they're going to take me under. It's, it's not going to be pretty. And so Jesus comes and says to them, uh, the cross is essential. It's a stumbling block for some of you who want a different kind of deity than, than I am. But I am the only God. And this is the only plan for the salvation of a people who have fallen from the Father. Stumbling block. Paul knew it. He said it was there. Now you've got another group. He says the Gentiles are going to just declare the whole thing is rubbish. It's just foolishness. This is, this is stupid. Who, who would believe this story? And so here's, here's the problem. You've got, you've got the extremists out there who just say there's no God anyway. And so for them, it's just like, well, there's no God, so we don't have to worry about the question. And any idea that Christians entertain about Jesus being the Savior and the cross and all that stuff, that is just so much garbled thinking that thinking minds ought to be ashamed of even concluding such ridiculous stuff. And so you've got guys who are sort of the, the patrons of a new uh, way of thinking, the, the new atheism, guys like Richard Dawkins. And uh, we, we got an interesting picture of him standing beside a bus with a, a buddy of his. Uh, and they're, they're putting this on the buses all over London. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's so many things wrong with that. We'll get that in a second. But, but what I'm pointing to right now is the quote on the side. Dawkins has said, with regard to the atonement and the cross, he says, I, I've described the atonement as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled 
our objectivity. We're, we've heard it so much, we don't even think about how absurd it is. We've heard about Jesus died for sin, Jesus died for sin, Jesus died for sin. So we don't even think about the fact how patently absurd that is. We would be barking mad to believe that if it were not for how often we've heard that. That's Dawkins. His American counterpart, uh, a guy named Sam Harris, says it this way. That was from the book, The God Delusion, a very popular worldwide bestseller, Dawkins' book, because people are so anxious to not believe that they'll bark at anything. And so here's, here's Sam Harris in his letter to a Christian nation book. He says, Christianity, this is an interesting summarization. Christianity amounts to the claim that we must love and be loved by a God who approves of the scapegoating torture and murder of one man, his son, incidentally, in compensation for the misbehavior and the thought crimes of all others. This is foolishness, is the conclusion that's being drawn here. That's the extreme out there. And so Paul comes back and says, yeah, I, I know people are going to think that. That's the way human beings process it. So for the Jews, it's going to be a stumbling block because they want God to be something different. For those who are the Gentiles who don't have any faith in God or anything, they're going to call the whole thing foolishness. But here's the truth. And this is verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He continued with his thinking about this with one message, the cross of Christ. He says, my speech, my message were not in persuasive or plausible words of wisdom, but they were in the demonstration of the spirit and power. I just wanted the simplicity of the message to bear the weight of this thing. There's no games. There's no tricks. There's no philosophical uh, gymnastics here. I just preached Christ and him crucified. And there's a power in that message because people can understand in the depths of their souls that, yes, I am indeed in need of something outside of myself to resolve the issue between my heart and the heart of the God who made me. Something's amiss. Now, so what is the basic message here? What, what is the message? If we can come back and, and, and identify what the uncompromised message of the cross is, uh, we, we think back of, in terms of Dawkins' uh, statement with his friend there on the buses, uh, there's probably no God. Okay, uh, what are the Vegas odds on that? <laughs> you know, if there's probability that there's no God, well, then, then there must be a probability also that there is one. Well, there's a probability that because there's no God, you can just live your life and enjoy it and don't worry about the consequences. Okay, but what if there actually is a God and there are consequences? Um, doesn't that seem to be a little problematic with your solution upon which you're basing your eternity on? That would seem to me to cause me to be a little less assertive in trying to draw people into my web when I don't really know myself. And I'm putting a probable instead of an absolute statement there. And so we have an issue here. So what is it that's going on? What do we, as followers of Christ, actually believe? And is this some Johnny-come-lately scheme that we've come up with, that we have defined it and refined it and put it into kind of codified form? And we can, yeah. Is that what it is? No. This is something that is anchored in our tradition, but also anchored in the truth of the Scriptures. And so just thinking back in terms of what we did to begin this sermon, we, we thought about it in terms of songs, our thinking about the cross has, in some ways, been shaped by what we sing as the people of God worshiping together. 
Is it indeed a song about some brutal, barbaric, not to be believed, leftover from a, from a previous generation that was somehow or another cut off from reality and they didn't know what we know and so therefore in their unsophisticated ways they embrace the stuff we know better is that what it is and we've got some remnants of that remaining no he says the songs we sing we just talked about some a while ago are amazingly powerful there's there's one by a woman named fanny crosby i'm going to just show you one of the verses of it fanny crosby was a woman who was blinded as as a little baby uh, and, and yet grew up to write something like 8,000, 9,000 hymns, some ridiculous amount of hymns that she wrote through the years. Here's a verse from one of them in which she's speaking this message of the cross. And the reason I'm sharing it with you, she was, she was writing back in the 1850s or so, somewhere in that part of, of time. And her understanding of the gospel is this. This is part of one of the verses. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom for me. I think she got it. You think she got it? I mean, I think this is, was this something that she made up? No, this is, this is a song that's reflective of what she had learned through the scriptures and through the songs that she had learned as a little girl and, and all the way down through the ages. Now, is that just then? No, here's a song from Darlene Check, Hillsong, Australia. This is where, uh, where Darlene says this. She says, at the cross, I bow my knee where your blood was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the highest place. What can separate me now? The message, it's the same message. And you can go through again and again and again. Some of the songs we've sung this morning, some from 21st century writers saying it's the cross. The resurrection has meaning because there was a death preceding the resurrection. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And so that becomes the picture in song. How about in creeds? What do we historically believe? Well, you go back to the Nicene Creed, 325 AD. That seems pretty early. Uh, in, in 325 A.D., the Nicene Creed documented this belief by saying it this way. Jesus was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again. That's what the Nicene Creed said in 325. This is not a Johnny-come-lately thing. 390, Apostles' Creed. Some people for apostles, some Nicene Whatever. Here's what the, uh, the Apostles' Creed 390 says. They suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, or descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. The creeds affirm. This is what we believe. This is the Christian faith. So across the nation this morning, we're not expecting the Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris's to be standing in the pulpits. They're not getting that invitation. But what is heartbreaking is that in many churches, pastors and churches are embracing a doctrine that removes the cross. Because it's offensive. There are publishing houses that are taking the story of the cross out of children's Easter stories because they're not sure that the brutality of it is something that they should be able to handle at a young age. So let's strip the message of the cross and then give it to them. There's no message anymore. God loves you. How? God demonstrated his own love toward you. And that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. It's the message of the cross. 
So the creeds affirm it. The, the, the songs of the faith, the traditions affirm it. Where did they get it? The scriptures are packed with it. As a matter of fact, next week, we're going we're gonna to take from Genesis to Revelation, just kind of give you a context. Tell us about the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist was baptizing, he saw Jesus in John 1, 29, walking by, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these guys are going like, I don't understand the concept. What are you talking about? And then seven verses later, verse 36, he again sees Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Who is the Lamb of God and why is he viewed as the Lamb of God? We're going to talk about that next week. But the scriptures affirm this in so many ways. Paul in, in Philippians says that Jesus being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Colossians 2, he has taken the hostility out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, through the cross, he has killed the hostility that existed against us and between us. He says in Romans 6 that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Peter gets in on the act when he starts writing his epistle and he says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Chapter two, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You you see, it just is over and over and over again. The message is without question. This is the gospel. So when when Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified, it is an awesome statement on his part. So what happens? What is the essence of the message? That's ours. Of conversation about that. But just think of it. it. First part of the message is sinners need forgiveness. Right? If you're going to have a relationship with the Holy God and you're a sinner, you need forgiveness. So, secondly, either you're going to try to atone for your own sin or somebody else is going to do it. So a sacrifice needs to be a substitute who is slain for you. The second thing is true about this. The third thing is, is that some high priest is going to need to take that sacrifice into the holy place where the Lord God himself will receive that sacrifice. And so we're sinners. Christ died as our substitute, our sacrifice, and he shed his blood. The high priest took the blood of the Lamb of God and took it to the Father to propitiate or pay off the wrathful vengeance of God against our sin. The high priest took that in there. The expiation part where it washed us clean from sin, the high priest took that. Who's the high priest? He's Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's the Lamb of God. He's, in the economy of God, both Lamb and priest going into the Holy of Holies. And so what is, what is waiting? What is waiting is for the approval and the acceptance of the sacrifice by the Father. Now, suspend for a moment the fact that you know the end of the story and that it is Easter Sunday and we've been talking about the empty tomb and the risen Savior. Suspend that. You don't know that right now. You're going to have to work really hard because you really do know that. But you don't know that for a moment. And Jesus has just been crucified, taken down off the cross. He's put in the tomb. And you're one of the angels in heaven, or you're one of the bystanders who are kind of watching this whole thing unfold. And you hear and understand perhaps maybe that this Jesus is the Messiah who's supposed to be the Savior of the world. You've heard John the Baptist say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you're watching this one that you had your hopes in put in a grave. And now you're waiting. And if you understand what's going on, you understand that the Lamb of God had to be slain 
And the high priest, once for all, would go into the holy place and take the blood sacrifice there. And so Jesus is in the grave. And it's Friday night now, and it's now Saturday. And Jesus is in the grave. And nothing is happening. And Jesus is still in the grave. What's happening? The world is waiting to see if the sacrifice on that altar of the cross is enough. Is it sufficient to atone for my sin? I got to know. I've got to know what happens next. Charles Spurgeon, the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London back in the 19th century, says this. He says, until God has signed the warrant for the acquittal of all his people, Christ must abide in the bonds of death. He's in that tomb. He's got he's to stay there until the Father has signed off on the acquittal of lost sinners. You, you tracking me? And the judge of all the earth has not signed anything off yet, and so Jesus is waiting. He didn't attempt to break his prison. He didn't come out illegally by wrenching down the bars of his dungeon. He waited. I love this part. He wrapped up the napkin, folding it by itself. He laid the grave clothes in a separate place. He waited, waited patiently. And at last, this is where you start getting excited. And at last, down from the skies like the flash of a meteor, the angel descended, touched the stone, and rolled it away. And when Christ came out, rising from the dead, in the glory of the Father's power, then was the seal put upon the great charter of our redemption. Then. The blood was accepted and sin was forgiven. I don't know what tradition you come from, but you ought to be sticking an amen in there. It's something we're about there. The blood was accepted. Sin was forgiven. What Jesus had said on the cross, it is finished, has now finally, ultimately, accepted by the Father, been totally finished forever. He once for all, the passage we read in Hebrews 9 said, once for all, our high priest went into the holy place with his own blood, not goats and bulls. and They were all pointing ahead to what was to come when the Lamb of God was slain himself. Once for all, without any atoning for his own sin, all the other high priests had to first atone for their own sin and then for the people of Israel. Jesus did not have to do that. Why? He was sinless, perfection, the perfect sacrifice. And he brings his own blood to the Father and says, Father, all who come in my name will be covered by this blood and their sin will be forgiven. And the debt that they owe and the verdict of death against them I paid the price for them. Receive them in the forgiveness that only I can give. Now, by what authority do we believe this message? He's alive. You get it? He's alive. He has risen from the dead and he lives forevermore. So you, you talk to your friends and say, well, I don't, I don't know if I believe all that stuff. Okay, well, what's the authority that gives you the idea that you can lend more credibility to what you're saying than what we're saying that is verified and is guaranteed by 
a once dead, now risen, living forever Savior seated on the throne in heaven. I'd love to know, if we can put these things together, why you would give more credibility to there's probably no God mentality versus the king of glory reigning forever. It says that we have such a high priest who has entered into the holy place and has entered into the presence of the Father, and it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Nobody sits down in heaven but the Son of glory because he's done everything that needed to be done, and it is finished. There's one more song I'll remind you of, and that's by a current writer, a lady named Brooke Fraser. Love Brooke Fraser's stuff. And she says, here's, here's my prayer. God, lead me to the cross. Lead me to the cross where your blood poured out. Bring me to my knees. Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself. I belong to you. Lord, lead me to the cross. That's, that's the message that is necessary for us to understand and grasp as we come to celebrate the resurrection today. Jesus paid it all. Jesus, Son of God, has done that for us. And he invites us into his new life to share in his death so that our sin is dealt with forever, so that we might be able to share in the resurrection and live with him forever, accepted in the beloved of the Father. Friends, that is why Easter is awesome. This is why we celebrate. That is why the joy is hard to contain. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing together one last song as we're closing out this morning. Our folks are going to be receiving the offering too. And if you're a guest, don't, the offering plate's not for you. As we're, you're a guest. But, but for the rest of us, we're going to be given uh, as an act of praise there. And our voices are going to be lifted up to the Lord, speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, and worshiping him in song. So let me pray, and we're going to close out our time in worship. Father, may the song that we sing accurately reflect the condition of our heart. And Father, for folks here who, who don't buy this yet, who haven't really grasped this or have major objections, or, or they, they feel like there's another perspective that, that hasn't been presented. Lord, of course, there are many things that haven't been presented. But Lord, may we be honest and faithful to consider Christ. And Lord, our prayers that all would hear come to you one by one and to be able to just say to you, lead me to the cross. Let me examine that. Before I dismiss it as irrelevant, Lord, may I come and see what you've done and understand the power of the cross. Father, we bow before you now as a people who are indebted eternally to you for Christ. And we thank you and we worship in his name. Amen.